Welcome to the Valley Church. Our mission is to see changed lives, and we hope this relevant teaching inspires you to take the next step in your spiritual journey. Thanks for checking out the podcast and enjoy the message. Good morning. I'm going to ask you a question this morning that makes me incredibly uncomfortable, and so part of being a preacher and teacher is just sharing my pain with you. So you're welcome in advance, but here's my question. When is the last time you had dinner with someone who wasn't a Christian? When is the last time you found yourself looking at somebody who didn't believe and you began to share your faith? I have to be honest, that's convicting for me. Man, when I first became a Christian, I I didn't understand anything about theology. I hadn't had Bible school. I don't even know that I had opened a Bible yet, and yet if you were around me, in some way, shape, or form, I was going to probably share my faith. I was going to talk about the fact that I went to church. It just kind of came up naturally. My habits, my lifestyle was changing, and people were noticing. And yet the more and more I go to church, the more and more I follow Christ, the more I notice that my time and my energy seems to be consumed with just spending my time around people who look like me, act like me, talk like me, who share the same faith. Well, most studies will tell us that every single Christian, or at least a a huge percentage of followers of Christ, think it is important and necessary to share our faith. And yet, those same studies will tell us that we struggle with it. So why is it so hard for us to share our faith with other people? Well, I think as I mentioned already that a lot of us don't have non-Christian friends. We just simply spend time with people like us. I think another reason we don't share our faith is because we don't want to come across as a jerk or mean or judgmental, and we've all seen tactics of sharing the Christian faith. Maybe you've even been a recipient of somebody sharing their faith with you, and they were, they were aggressive, mean, and maybe even manipulative. I also think in our culture today, it's really hard to get into real conversations. We see all the vitriol on Facebook and Instagram and social media, and so when it comes to having deep conversations with people, we tread so lightly because we're afraid of burning bridges and losing friendships. Today, I want to look at how Jesus did this completely different. When Jesus was walking around, he had no problem inviting people into his kingdom, into his life, and into his mission. For him, sharing about who he was and what God was doing and could do seemed incredibly natural. And that's what I want for all of us today. But maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian and you're thinking, man, I hate it when Christians share my faith with me and, um, and now we're going to talk about sharing faith. I kind of want to turn off the TV or just leave, get some coffee and go. But I want to encourage you that if you are not a follower of Christ and you have been hurt and, and by people sharing their faith with you, I want to take a serious look at not only how Jesus did it, but who he was. Because what I see in the scripture is that, is that where, other, where the religious people often pushed those outside the faith away, Jesus always drew them in. That when he shared his faith, it brought beauty and wholeness and goodness into the world. And when the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees, and the religious people who had grown crusty and stale shared their faith, Jesus described them as crossing oceans to make them to make one convert and turning them into twice a child of hell as they were. And so while other people shared their faith and it brought anger and distress and pain, when Jesus shared who he was and about the kingdom, it brought life and hope to those who had felt like they were outside the church all of their lives. And so for all of us today, let's listen in and see who Jesus was and how he shared his kingdom and his mission. 
Luke 5, verse 27 through 32 is what we're reading today. I'll begin in verse 27. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up and left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Our familiarity with this passage is unfortunate because because it kind of makes it, we just kind of look at this and we think of maybe if you've been raised in the church, you think of like cute flannel graphs and just, oh, Jesus loves everyone. It's so cute and sweet that he's loving a tax collector. So we need to kind of recover the punch of this passage. You see, tax collectors were not just thought of as the bad guys. In many ways, they absolutely were a bad guy. You see, when Rome conquered nations, they, that's how they funded the Roman Empire. They would collect the most taxes from the people they conquered. They had conquered the Jewish people hundreds of years ago and were oppressing them. And instead of sending their own tax officers, because that could be dangerous, what they would do is they would allow the, the highest bidder to become a, a tax collector or a publican sometimes, as it's called. And so these people would actually, them or their family would apply for this job, they would get it, and they would collect taxes for the Roman. Now this job had no income in and of itself, but you would just charge a little bit more. So if a family owed 500, you'd charge them 1,000. If they owned 2,000, you'd charge them 2,500. It was up to you what you wanted to charge people, and Rome wouldn't say a thing about it, but as a perk of this job, you would have Roman soldiers, the most advanced fighting force the world had ever seen. You would have Roman soldiers to protect you, to enforce your taxes. And so for a second, just imagine if a foreign country conquered us and everybody's scared, everybody's afraid, but your neighbor sees this as a good business opportunity and they begin collecting taxes. There's a reason nobody in their right mind would talk to or sit with a tax collector and yet these were the people that Jesus spent time with us, time with. Jesus made the lost, the lonely, and the left out a priority. He always made the people on the outside of the established religion of his day, he made them a priority, and he looked at them different than everybody else. Imagine with me for a minute the person in your mind that you see as despicable. Maybe it's an enemy at work. Maybe it's somebody in your neighborhood you just can't stand. Maybe it's, maybe it's somebody that you have to see on a regular basis, and this person has hurt you and done just awful things. Maybe it's that political party on the other side of the aisle that you just can't stand. Your stomach churns when you think about this person or that group of people. Now imagine Jesus comes to earth, and instead of spending time with you, these are the people he spends time with. He's gathered around tables and coffee shops talking with the people who you see as broken and lost and the enemy, and he is spending time with them laughing, enjoying a good time. Imagine the anger, the hurt, and the resentment you would feel. Jesus had this habit of even going to his enemies and showing them love and compassion. If you've watched the news, you've heard that Roe versus Wade may be overturned in the coming months. Obviously, things are going to get intense, and social media is already getting ugly. No surprise to any of us. I'm going to make a a statement here. I'm going to be incredibly transparent with you. That from the early days of the church, the Romans had this practice of, of 
killing infants that they didn't want. They would take them out to bridges and throw them in water or throw them in garbage heaps. And the early Christians would actually go out to those places and kind of hide. And when they saw babies in need, they would go and rescue them. And if they could, they would save the child and raise it as their own. And if they didn't save the child, then often they would find that child um, buried. They would bury that child with them and often name it. If you look at early Christian catacombs, you'll find family members and non-relatives together, and you will find oftentimes the burials of these children that were named and loved that the world was throwing out. I want you to know that I am proud to be a part of a history and a tradition of believers that cares for the unborn and the unwanted. But I want you to know that that predates any kind of political tribe or stance or the anger or the vitriol. But I also want to be the kind of person who reaches out in love to everyone because that is what Jesus did. He didn't see people as despicable or as his enemies or beyond God's grace and redemption. I want to be the kind of person who loves the, the unborn. I want to be the kind of person who loves moms who are in a crisis situation. I want to be the kind of person who will take care of, of women and their children and young families. I want to be the kind of person who even reaches out in love and compassion and listens to those who, who don't agree with me, who don't have a different stance than me. Somebody asked me this week, what would you, what would you do if... Um, what would you do if you ran into pro-choice protesters? And, and my honest instant thought was, and I'm, I, at the same time I'm bathing in this passage and I'm thinking, well, I would like to think I would go up to them and be kind and friendly and offer a cup of coffee and sit down and talk and listen and share the hope I have in Christ with them. Every time in my life I have stepped outside of my comfort zone, every time I have followed God and tried my best to make the lost and the lonely a priority, I have seen God do amazing things. You see, to be like Jesus, we have to reorient some of the things that we do. We have to change the way we see people. We no longer see people as enemies or opponents. We have a tendency in our world to see everybody as white hats and black hats, to say, okay, here's the good people, here's the bad people. When the message of the gospel isn't that good and bad is between us and them, the line between evil runs right through the middle of every single one of us. And to be like Christ, I wonder how many people walked by Levi and never offered him hope. They hated what he was doing, but nobody offered him a way out. And yet Jesus walked by him, and he doesn't, we don't see that Jesus convinced him of his sin. Jesus didn't tell him, you're going to hell. He simply said, follow me. We have to begin to see people differently. Our evangelism, the way we share our faith, needs to be fueled by love and not by hate. We've all had people that have come to us and don't like us and try to get what they want out of us and use us in that way. But then the people who love us and care about us, it does something in us and we're able to change and to grow. So, so what does it look like for us to share our faith? Is it going up to somebody and asking them, if you were to die tonight, where would you go? Not sure. Is it standing on the street with a, a sign that says turn or burn, and maybe the reverse side says get sanctified or chicken fried? <laughs> Probably not, although I like rhymes. Is it, is it, is it watching, is it, is it posting on my Facebook a YouTube debate where a Christian intellectual smashes a Darwinian materialist? Probably not. Not even sure what some of those words mean. 
Is it posting Bible verses on our social media? Okay, we could do a lot worse, but I don't think that's where it ends. You see, if we look at Jesus' method of sharing his faith, Jesus often shared his faith. His greatest tool was a table. You see, it's amazing to me in this passage, Jesus just says to Levi, follow me, and the very next thing that happened is Levi gathers his friends, and the next thing we do, it's controversial, but Jesus is eating with these, these tax collectors, these sinners around this table, sharing life with them. In the early church, this was called hospitality. We've talked about this before, the importance of hospitality for building relationships with Christians, but what we haven't done is talked about hospitality as one of the main modes in which Jesus shared his faith. Jesus' strategy for evangelism was often a table. You see, that word hospitality actually means, it's from the, the Greek philo xenos. Philo meaning love, xenos meaning stranger. Hospitality simply means to love the stranger. It is the exact opposite of xenophobia, which means fear of strangers. You see, Jesus had this practice when he was talking to church people, to religious people, to people who wanted to follow God or people who thought they were following God. He would often preach in synagogues and in the countryside. He would teach. But when he was with the lost and the lonely and the hurting and the people who had been pushed away and rejected by religious people, he often started with just a simple meal. And the early church followed suit. The early church, there were sermons, but those were usually to large crowds of, of, of religious people. But the church, as you read in Acts and as we look at early church history, one table at a time, the faith was often spread. If you think about it, the faith started with a couple hundred people in an upper room praying, seeking Jesus. And even though they were persecuted, even though they were often laughed at, even though people thought they were crazy, within 300 years, 50% of the Roman Empire had become Christian. And it happened without TV, without the internet. It happened without, without mass media. It happened one table at a time. In fact, this idea of hospitality eventually became hospitals and hotels, these places where the sick and the wandering could come and, and be taken care of. But even before that, with individual believers, they had this practice called the Christ room. Pastors and teachers would instruct their people, and many people did this. They would have one room in their house set aside for the wandering and the stranger. So if you saw somebody who was homeless, somebody who was passing through, somebody who was in need, you would invite them into your home to stay, and that room would be very simple and would often have one candle in it known as the Christ candle. And preaching to his congregation about this, around three, between 300 and 400 AD, there was this leader in the church named St. John Chrysostom, often referred to as St. John of the Cross. And he was talking to everybody, preaching on the passage of whatever you've done for the least of these, you've done for Jesus. And he's telling his congregation that every single one of you should have a Christ room in your house because when you welcome the stranger, when you welcome the immigrant, when you welcome the poor and the lonely, you are actually welcoming Christ himself. And I was reading this just last night, actually, and, and he said to his congregation, he said, for those of you who are following Christ... How can you have a place in your home designated for your wagon, but not a place in your home designated for someone who bears the image of God? I heard that and I was like, ow, I didn't know preaching could hurt. And I know 
that all of us may not be able to have a room like that in our house, but what about a seat in our table? You see, I tend to view my home as my castle, as my place to retreat. I go home and tend to think my work is done and discipleship is maybe praying with my kids at night or reading a book. But what would it look like for us to start opening our homes for our neighborhood, for, our, for, our, for the people we know at work who don't know Christ? What would it look like if we tried to make sure that we prioritize those who don't know Christ in our lives by simply using our table? It was a couple of years ago, and um, I remember I, it was summer. I was hanging out with my teens in the park. I was a youth pastor at the time. And one of the things at the park, I think at the time I was playing football, but they had these cement table tennis tables, and they were really, really cool. And our teens were playing somebody, and all of them were getting beat. And I'm not an excellent table tennis player, but I'm, I'm not half bad either. And so my teens eventually all started running up to me, and Pastor Ryan, Pastor Ryan, I think we found somebody who can beat you. Um, and they're like, come play this guy so we can watch you get beat finally. And I was like, uh, okay, okay. So I went and played this guy. He won one game, and he was a lot better than me. And then I won one game. It was kind of like David versus Goliath. I felt like I was, you know, being handed a victory, you know. And, and we get done playing table tennis, and we're hanging out, and, and he, he introduces himself as Shahab. He's um, in, his, in his late 20s, successful guy. And he, he looks at us, and as we get done playing ping pong, he says, you know what? Could we do this again? I don't have a lot of friends. And I said, absolutely. We exchanged phone numbers, and next time I went and I played, uh, we went to the park, and we, uh, we played table tennis again. And oddly enough, like a Christian street preacher came up and started preaching to Shahab and his family. And I'm kind of sitting there as a fly on the wall. And the street preacher did um, an, a really honestly an amazing job. He was kind. He was gentle. He, sometimes they would ask questions and you could tell he was on a script so he would answer a question that they weren't asking. But uh, I mean, none of us are perfect. Other than that, I felt like he was stepping out in courage. He was being faithful as a brother in Christ. And I'm just kind of sitting there feeling guilty that he did that before me. And then he leaves, and I look at my friend uh, Shahab, and uh, I just say, in his family, and I said, I gotta be honest with you guys, I've done some of that before. I have never seen anybody as nice as, with a street preacher ever. Usually people just yell at him and tell him to get away. You guys listened, you asked questions. I thought that was really cool how you, how you responded to him. And Shahab and his family, who were Muslim, looked at me and said, well, we... we uh, we, we, we have to be like that because we know people will think we're terrorists if we're not. And then Shahab looked at me and they started asking me a few questions, but then they just looked at me and said, hey, why don't you come over to our house and eat with my family? And I said, absolutely. I brought my wife and my kids and we went over to Shahab's house and I learned what a real evangelism, real hospitality could look like from this Muslim. We went over to their house and the food wasn't extravagant, but it was lovingly prepared. There was plenty of it. We sat around the table, we ate, our kids ate. And, and I'm thinking the whole time, I, I, the Lord may want me to share my faith, but I'm not sure how to approach this. And then Shahab just started asking me questions. He started asking me things like, hey, how did you become a Christian? And before I know it, we started sharing uh, our faith, our lives together. And I had Christian friends who were like, do you think he's just trying to convert you? And I'm like, well, I want to tell him about Jesus. So I think turnabout's fair play, right? But what I found out was is that we had a lot in common. We had a lot that was different, but we could love each other across the table and with food. 
And to this day, we still once in a while communicate via Facebook, and, and he obviously hasn't. I haven't become Muslim, and he hasn't become Christian, and yet we have shared our faith with each other. Nobody has gotten mad. Nobody's yelled at each other. We don't argue with each other. We just simply share what we feel like God is doing in our lives and in our hearts. Man, at the Valley Church, we really can change this community one table at a time one table at a time. Because the way we do evangelism, it's not about a track, it's not about a process, it's not about all these tips, although we'll get to some of those. The heart of evangelism is we are simply just inviting people to follow Jesus with us. Jesus invited people to follow him. You see, in verse 27, Jesus goes to Levi, and it's interesting to me that once again, he doesn't convince Levi of his sin. He doesn't lead him through the sinner's prayer, although that's good and a good place to to get people to. He comes to Levi and simply just says, follow me. You see, sometimes in the church, we accidentally or implicitly teach this thing that I call fire insurance Christianity. We teach that Christianity is about just saying a prayer, asking Jesus to forgive your sins so that you can go to heaven when you die, and that is true and good, and absolutely all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and absolutely we need to have our sins forgiven. But when I was a teenager, they preached that message to us. We'd go down to an altar, we'd ask Jesus to forgive our sins, and then many of us would turn around and be the exact same person. There was no life change, there was no actual repentance, which is a turning from one way of life, following yourself or following others, to follow following someone else, and we just would kind of walk away and be the same kind of people. But for some of us, we started to understand that the good news of Christ includes salvation, but it also includes following Jesus, making him the king and Lord of your life. One of the scariest verses in the Bible is Matthew 7, 21, that says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now these are Jesus' words, not mine, so we'll leave them on the screen for a second, but just soak those in. Is Jesus here saying that we earn our salvation? I don't think so. But what I think Jesus is saying here is that we need him to be both our Savior and our King, that we need both salvation and obedience. And that the most powerful thing that we can do in sharing our faith with others is by simply following Jesus ourselves. Levi knows very little about Jesus at this point, right? I mean, he doesn't know that Jesus is going to die on the cross. He doesn't know that Jesus is going to be raised from the dead. How could he? And yet he begins to follow Jesus, to leave things behind, and all of his friends come with him. In the same way that the sun pulls the planets into its orbit, and that brings life and beauty and goodness, God wants to pull us into his orbit by, as we follow him, as we ask him to forgive our sins, as we turn away from the destructive patterns of our life, and as we understand his love and that he has something better for us, we begin to get pulled into Jesus' orbit, and much like planets with satellites and, and moons, that, that all of a sudden we all start following in rhythm, in sync with the sun, and it leads to beauty and life, not because we think we're better than people, but because we are lost people who are becoming found in Jesus' presence. One of the most effective things you can do is just tell people, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. 
It's exactly what Paul said. 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 says just that. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. To me, this always sounded arrogant. I know I'm not allowed to call the Apostle Paul arrogant, so you, know, you can strike that from the record, but it always sounded weird to me to just go up to somebody and say, hey, if you want to follow Jesus, just be like me. That's a, little, that's a little intimidating. That's a little bit weird, but I guess Paul can say that, but not us. And then I ran to somebody who actually did it. I was in a band and we were touring the Christian camp scene and I met this youth pastor that I really looked up to. He had tons of kids in his youth group. They were from a disadvantaged background and their lives had been transformed. Not only, uh, not only did they come to know Jesus as their savior, but they're making better life choices. They're getting helped out of poverty. And I asked him, what's your secret? How, do you, how are you such an amazing youth pastor? And he didn't share about a college degree or a program. He didn't share his structure or strategy. He just told me his story. He said, I felt called to reach these kids for Jesus, but I had no way to get to Bible college or seminary. I had no books on training. I didn't know anybody else who was doing youth ministry. So I decided I would just read the gospels and try to become like Jesus. And so he said, all I would do is just read the gospels and anything Jesus did, I would just try to do it. So if he healed sick people, I would go and pray for these kids when, when their family members were sick. He told people their sins were forgiven, so I'd go to him and say, hey, you can be forgiven for that. He spent time with the outcast and the lonely, so I started doing that with all the kids in the neighborhood who had no one, and eventually I start to see their lives changed. I decided early on that I am going to follow Jesus, and many of his kids, because of their background, because of, of, the, of some of the breakdown and the cycle of poverty and, and what was going on in their local school system, a lot of these kids either didn't have access to a Bible, they couldn't read, or they didn't have time to read, and so he started to tell these kids that if you are out and about and I'm not around, just ask yourself what would Pastor Dave do? And he said, with that came an incredible amount of responsibility on my shoulders because I knew I had to be following Jesus. I knew that these kids were looking at me and they would become like me. And so I had to follow Jesus so passionately they would do it with me. Every single one of us can invite people to follow Jesus with us. And that is what it is all about Man, I came to Christ at 16 when I was sitting in driver's ed because somebody walked over to me and said, hey, would you like to come to my church? I went the first time and I thought these people are weird and crazy and I'm never going back. They sing weird songs, they talk about weird things, I'm not doing it. Two months later though, things were kind of getting bad and I decided to go back. I was a kid who was struggling with suicide and depression and I thought life had no meaning and no hope and then I walked into the church and they showed me hospitality. All of a sudden, I was sitting at their tables, metaphorically, but also literally. They'd invite me out to eat. We'd talk. The kids, that uh, there was no line between popular and unpopular. They didn't try to convince me of my sins. I had plenty, and they were probably pretty obvious for a lot of people to see, but they simply wanted to, to win me over with the love of Christ. I even remember I'd been attending youth group for two years and I'm getting picked on and bullied at my school at one point and I think a fight's about ready to break out because some kid wants my lunch money or something like that. And one of the kids from my youth group, I'm not even sure I had met him yet, looked over and said, hey, that kid goes to my school, leave him alone, or goes to my church, leave him alone. And they totally backed away and I was like, wow, this church thing comes with a lot of power. <laughs> I was loved into the kingdom and you can do the same with other people. None of the kids in my youth group, including me, were not theological experts. They didn't get up and, and preach a ton of sermons, but they genuinely loved me like Jesus did. So here's some of the things you can practically start doing. First of all, start praying. 
As simple as it sounds, I had an evangelism course in seminary, and we sat down in day one. The professor says, I'm going to teach you so much about evangelism, and you're probably going to forget it all. What a great way to start a class, right? Homework's due on Friday. But then he said, but here's what I want you to never forget, and this obviously did work. He says, every single day, I want you to pray that God would open up a door for you to share your faith. Every single day, just start praying. And I gotta be honest, it's not that it works every single time, but so many times when I ask God just to put somebody in my path that I can share my faith with, I'm amazed at how many times God does that. But you also have to trust that the Holy Spirit will give you the right words. Luke 12, 12 says, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at what time you should say. And this is where Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, when you get brought before synagogues, when you're persecuted for your faith, trust that the Holy Spirit is going to give you the right words to say. For years, I would talk to people about Christ and I would feel like I would just say stupid things, like my foot would be in my mouth, I wouldn't know the right words, or even if they said, so how do you become a Christian? I would get so freaked out, I would be like, I'm not sure, you know, I'm like leafing through my Bible. And I remember just that fear and I, I, I started to stop sharing, but then one day I realized that it doesn't say the Holy Spirit will give you fancy words. It doesn't say the Holy Spirit's gonna make you look good. In fact, the Holy Spirit's goal is never to make you look good, it's always to point to God. And so when I started wondering, wait a second, if I stumble over my words, if I say the wrong thing, can I still trust the Holy Spirit? And that changed things for me. 1 Peter 3, 15 through 16 also has tons of practical advice on how to share your faith. Let me read this for you. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks to give you the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Whenever you share your faith, always do it with gentleness and respect. Jonathan Haidt, in this book called The Righteous Mind, I don't believe he's a believer, but he did a lot of research on what makes somebody change their mind to believe one thing and then to believe another. And a lot of us think that if we, somebody believes, changes their mind on something, it first starts with a logical, reasoned argument, that we give them enough facts and enough figures, and they will believe in Jesus. And in that book, he says when people change their minds, it, it never has to do with them being won over with an argument. We're not as rational as we think we are as people. He said people are always one with a relationship. When people change their beliefs on something, it usually starts with they meet someone who disagrees with them, but they realize they like them anyway. They disagree with them, but they still think there's something likable about that person. And then that belief kind of sits in their mind and begins to work its way through. And then they get to a place where they think, you know what, that would be beautiful if it was true. And then they'll go out and get the facts and figures and come to a decision point and decide that it is true. And so when it comes to winning people for Christ, it's not that we're trying to manipulate them, but we realize that the old adage is true that people don't care until they know that you care. People don't know, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. And so we share our faith with gentleness and respect. And we have to use both actions and words. There are some people who will say, I'm really good at actions and that's how I share my faith. I'm gonna be so loving and so kind that I share my faith that way. And some people say, well, that's not really my spiritual gift, so I'm just gonna use my words. But this passage is very clear that we need both. 
Peter says, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope you have in Christ. But then he also says, but keep a clear conscience so that no one can speak ill of you. We need both actions and words. The gospel has always been shared with both. If you have actions but not words, it's incredibly unclear. I can mow my neighbor's lawn out of love, but it is very unlikely that he's going to open up the window and say to his wife, you know what? The way Ryan just edged my yard, I... It makes me think that Jesus is king. (laughs) It's probably not going to happen. But we also can't have words without action. We call that hypocrisy. We call that being a fake or phony. You'll see it uh, posted on social media all the time. It'll say, St. Francis of Assisi said this, preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. Fun fact, he never actually said that. In fact, following the Gospel of Mark in chapter 16, where Jesus tells his disciples to preach to all creation, that St. Francis is famous. We don't really have a video camera of him doing this, obviously, but it's often reported that he would literally go out to animals and preach to them. Like he would literally share the gospel with animals. He spent so much time doing that. If you're afraid of sharing the gospel, just try to do that. Go out to your yard, find some squirrels, hand them some food. They'll look at you funny. They'll eat food while you share the gospel. And then when they see another squirrel, they're going to run off into a tree and ignore you. If you do that, you'll be good at evangelism. If you like it, sign up for junior high ministry. Okay? (laughs) Just kidding. Junior hires, I love you. But yes, you weren't paying attention anyway, so we're good. (laughs) So... So, we have to use both words and actions. And then one of the best tips I've ever learned is when Jesus comes to mind, simply talk about him. Levi didn't know anything. He said, hey, this real crazy dude told me I could leave my tax collecting. (laughs) Nobody ever asked me. I hate this job. Why Why don't you guys come see Jesus with me? That's all they did. And so oftentimes, sharing your faith is as simple as when Jesus comes to your mind, just open your mouth. I was talking with my wife about this, and she said, I started sharing my faith so much more when I realized I was actually choosing not to talk about Jesus. I would have this amazing time with my devotions in the morning, and I would go into work, and people would say, how's your morning? And instead of sharing, hey, I had this wonderful time in devotions and prayer today, and this is what Jesus is teaching me, she said, I would just say, it was fine. Or when people asked her, you know, why are you a counselor? She said, if I tried to make up some kind of secular reason and leave Jesus out of it, I realized I was just being disingenuous. I was almost lying. So I just had to tell them, well, I feel like Jesus had called me to do this. When I was a teenager, I remember when people started asking me, how was your weekend? That's the question everybody asks. When you go to work on Monday, I mean, seriously, how many of you are going to be asked, how was your weekend? What if you just simply shared, here's what Jesus taught me at church. Here's what Jesus is teaching me. You know, reaching out to somebody this week can be as simple as inviting them to dinner, as inviting them to a cup of coffee. For those of you that have lunch at work, maybe you scarf lunch down to get more work done because nobody has time for relationships at work. What if you invited the people that you work with to actually sit down and eat lunch together and talk about something other than work? What if you used the time you had? What if you saw your place, your home, not as your castle, but as your mission station? What if you saw your table not as closed, but as open for Jesus and his kingdom? Not every single one of you can set aside a Christ room in your house, although someone might be able to. 
But you can pull up extra chairs probably every night and think about who are we called to bring to this table. So the two things I want you to do to practice that this week is one, I want you to ask these questions. Luke 5, 27 through 32, read this at your table today and ask these questions. How does someone become a Christian and what is the gospel or good news of Jesus? And what you need here is not, it is not a theological intellectual debate. It is just practice for you sharing about the hope you have in Christ. And second of all today, don't, don't miss out on the fact that you have been invited to Jesus' table, but you are not invited to come alone. You are called to bring others with you, not out of force, not out of coercion, but out of self-giving, sacrificial love. Donnie's going to lead us in worship. This song called Come to the Table, and here's what I want for us as a congregation today. We're going to be celebrating communion together. And as you know, the, the bread represents the body of Christ broken for you, and the juice represents the blood of Christ which was shed for you. And here at the Valley, we take open communion, which means that anyone who's made a decision to follow Christ, you don't have to be a member of our church, you don't have to be coming here for weeks on end, anybody who's made a decision to follow Christ can come up during this song and take communion. But here's what I want you to do as you come and as this song plays, I want you to think, am I Levi? Am I at a place today where I am ready to leave behind the things of the past? my sins, my pain, my hurt, and trust in Jesus who brings new life to all who come to him. Is it time for me to make a decision to follow Christ? If you're here today and you've never made a decision to follow Christ, I invite you to, during this song, to come talk to me, come talk to Pastor Cindy up there in the front row, or come talk to one of the people with the orange lanyards around their neck. Today could be the day where you make the decision to follow Christ. But for some of us, we need to realize that we come to the table, as hard as this is, we have to ask ourselves, are we coming to the table as Pharisees? Have we structured our priorities to be around our religion, our purity, and have we pushed people in need of charity and the love of God away? And so as you come to the table, realize that Christ died for your sins, that you can be forgiven, that you can still repent. But may you also allow God to put the name or the face of someone who he is calling you to invite to your table. So as you come today, ask Jesus, Lord, forgive my sins, take them away, but help me to care and to love people like you did. Help me to invite people to follow you with me. Let's sing this song and take communion together. To stay up to date with our weekly messages, make sure you subscribe and follow us on social media. You can check us out on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, or download our app to stay connected to all things the Valley. And if today's message impacted you, share it with a friend, because changed lives change lives.